0: Hope y'all are doing well. Uh, We are going to sort of pick up where we were last week, which is looking at how the Old Testament prepares us for the New Covenant and the the New Testament. And we're going to look at today comparing and contrasting the Old and New Covenant and also seeing, most importantly, how the New Covenant is far better than the Old Covenant. And uh, our plan is that this would be the last Sunday that we would do this approach. And then starting next Sunday, we would start dealing with maybe some of the major topics and themes Mm -hmm. and how these things kind of come to their fruition and fulfillment in the new covenant era. So starting next Sunday, if we hopefully we'll get through most of this today, (laughs) starting next Sunday, our plan is to start talking about Israel and the church, which is really the hot button issue uh, that a lot of these things are connected to. So how you understand the relationship between Israel and the church that will take at least probably a couple, of three weeks. I don't know how many. We'll, we'll see a few weeks on that. And then we'll look at the land promise with Israel. We'll look at the Sabbath law. We'll look at a bunch of different issues and seeing them through the whole Bible and how they're fulfilled in Jesus. And so a lot of the controversy of this series will come out more clearly, I think, in the, in the coming weeks, because that's where the rubber meets the road on how you actually apply this stuff. So in the meantime, uh, Greg, can you pray for us? And then we'll, uh, we'll jump yeah. in.
1: Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have shown us favor Favor that we do not deserve. Favor that we could never earn. Favor that is in fact contrary to what we do deserve. Lord, because in and of ourselves we are sinners who have rebelled against You, chosen our own way, gone our own way, preferred our own way uh, to You. We have thumbed our nose at You and turned our backs on You. And Lord, as Sproul so rightly said, that is cosmic treason. Lord, we deserve the very worst of all penalties for that, and yet that is the very thing that Jesus bore in our place on the cross so that through repentance and faith we can come back to you. Lord, what a gift of grace, what a gospel message, what a Savior you've given us. Um, Lord, may our hearts be drawn to him more and more through this study. Lord, even as we're considering how to fit the Bible together, lord help us not slide into a mere academic or intellectual appreciation of these things because this is how our savior is revealed and made known and lord we want to know him love him trust him more uh because of this um so lord help mark and i help us be clear uh help us continue to to unfold your word to proclaim as paul said the whole counsel of god um And Lord, we just pray to continue to benefit our church in all the right ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And before we jump in, I don't want to be overly distracting by bringing this up,
0: but it's worth mentioning because I think it matters. so Alistair Begg is a pastor that we love around here. He's been faithful to God's Word for 40 years and has preached and been at a lot of conferences and things that we've talked about and, and referenced a lot. A couple, a few months ago, he said something that uh, made it, that I guess, kind of found its way into social media a couple of weeks ago and has made the rounds big time, the last two or so weeks. And so we've been asked about it, and so we thought we would just say something publicly, and then next Sunday we may say something else because he said he's going to address the issue tonight in his evening service at his church uh, because it's, it's made such a big... Uh, such big waves. Basically, boiling it down, uh, Alistair Begg was talking about, If if, uh, he was talking to a grandmother who was invited to a transgender wedding, I guess of her grandson or something along these lines. Many of you may have seen this or heard this clip, and uh, he said, you got to make it clear to your grandson that you do not approve of the transgender lifestyle, that you believe it's not God's will, that it's sinful. Does your grandson know that you believe that that's wrong? And she said, yes. The grandmother said, yes. So Alistair Begg uh, said something that I did not expect him to say. The grandmother
1: didn't expect The grandmother
0: did not expect him to say, which Alistair Begg said, he thinks uh, you should make clear that you think it's wrong, but that you should still attend the wedding. And he said, even bring a gift. And um, so uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just say, okay, we're going to run over Alistair Begg with the, with the theology truck right now, but it's a serious error. Uh, We've, many of us have made errors in the past this is one where we want to give him a chance to correct himself. Well, initially when the radio, some radio stations that host Alistair Begg's sermons uh, contacted his team and they asked him if he retracted the statement that he made in September after the controversy had kind of swollen up and he said, his team said he did not retract the statement. Now that's not a good sign. So they dropped him off, I don't know how many radio shows in the last couple weeks. That place has like 180 radio stations or something. So he's off a lot of radio stations just of this week because of his remarks. So tonight at his church he's going to address the issue in more depth, and uh, we want to pray that that uh, he retracts his statement. I, I think it's I think it's a pretty serious. error. Greg,
1: just quick thoughts on on what's happening here. Um, I mean, again, I want to I want to wait to say too much before he actually addresses it because you know it, it's not enough for his team to say it; it's, he needs to say it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm, I'm skeptical based on his even his initial remarks at his church this morning that you sent me the link to. Um, it seems like Again, seems like, hopefully, he talks about this, it'll be different, but it seems like he's using worldly definitions of love and compassion and not necessarily scriptural ones on, on this issue. It's Now, we rejoice that he says the, the union itself is sinful. We cannot affirm it. We cannot endorse it. But it's the practice of going to a wedding where that's being celebrated. That's in the issue. And his comments had to do with, you know, the grandson, if you don't go, it's only going to reaffirm his idea that Christians are hateful, mean, whatsoever, and you can actually shock him by going and showing love. Um, that's kind of the the, the the reason, the nexus of, of his argument. Um, and so I hope he retracts that. There's a lot I want to say to that, that we've we've talked back and forth on, you and me, as the elders as well, Um so, I, I don't want to, we're not going to get into that just yet. We want to see if, by God's grace, perhaps he modifies his position and has a more biblical orthodox position. Um, and, and, and again, I don't, you know, th- this is the same kind of disagreement I would have, I had with like J.D. Greer, like on pronoun usage and stuff like that. I don't think Beg has compromised the heart of the gospel. I don't think that. But like you said, this is a serious error. And how you arrive at a position like that. It, it sometimes can kind of pull the lid off and say maybe there's more at work under the surface in terms of a bad methodology that wasn't apparent until an issue like this comes out.
0: Yeah, so I know there's probably questions you might have. Again, next Sunday, we, we, we will hopefully hear what he said tonight, and then we can maybe say another word about it then, but obviously we disagree with him on, on what yeah. he said there.
1: And there are some scriptures, like, again, one, next Sunday we'll, we'll look at several scriptures um, when we have a little more time that, that I think show... His reasoning thus far is just out of sync with Scripture.
0: Yes, so we are going to, we're going to transition here back to where we were uh, last Sunday, and we're still discussing uh, how the old covenants, uh, the, the covenants in the Old Testament anticipate and are fulfilled uh, in Jesus. And so, um, quoting here from uh, Wellam and Hunter's book, the new covenant eclipses each previous covenant because it fulfills them. And I, I don't know if you'll be able to see this, can you all read any of that? I, I, that may not be the clearest from where you're sitting. So th- this is a chart in, uh, from uh, that Wellem had in, in one of his books, Kingdom Through Covenant. And uh, if I can, I'll zoom in a little bit on this side, a little bit closer. It's a little bit bigger there. But you've got here the covenant with creation with Adam. Uh, we were all represented by Adam, and when we fell, when Adam fell, we fell with Adam. We are then seeing the, the covenant with creation fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus is the true and last Adam, he's gonna recreate the world, a new creation, he's gonna have dominion over it, so he is gonna fulfill all that Adam failed to do in that covenant. With the covenant with Noah, uh, this covenant's a little different by its nature, but God is gonna sustain this physical world until redemptive history has come to an end, and so Jesus is gonna ultimately fulfill the Noahic covenant, because until the serpent crusher comes, there'll be seed time and harvest, sun and moon, and on and on, until, until that promise is fulfilled. The promise to Abraham that his seed would bless the nations. Well, Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham who will bless the nations through him. So Jesus fulfills that covenant. As you move further down Redemptive History, I'm going to kind of scoot this thing a little bit to the side. So we're, okay, if that makes sense, we just move that way. So we're past Abraham. Uh, the sons of Abraham, after the Exodus, they become a nation. Israel, God makes the Mosaic covenant or the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai that we spend a lot of time on in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Israel ultimately is fulfilled by Jesus as a person. Remember, he is the true, he is true Israel. He is the true son of Abraham. He fulfills all the things that Israel failed to do. Remember, his tempting in the wilderness parallels Israel's tempting. Jesus is the true son, the true Israel. So Jesus fulfills the Mosaic covenant in himself. We'll talk about the implications in coming weeks. Then the Davidic covenant is really easy to see because Jesus is in a direct line of descent from David, uh, he is the son of David. And then through Jesus, now he has a new people who are all those who are united with Christ uh, coming upon the, the final judgment. Jesus and his people will reign in a new heavens and a new earth uh, forever. And so you can see here how the new covenant, this era here, is really connected to vitally and fulfilling all that came before. So I'll, I'll zoom back out to the big picture. Greg, anything you want to say about how, it's a pretty amazing, I thought that was a great
1: graph just to kind of see it all in one place, how these old covenants are, are, are pointed to Jesus yeah I think one thing we we've kind of talked about this before this illustrates somewhat and there's another one you have in here that I think we're going to get to later that illustrates kind of this this narrowing down like you've got creation um, up there uh, with Adam and then the promise of a seed obviously um, comes through the son of Noah through uh, one of the sons of Noah so it's not just any child of Adam it's specifically from the line of Noah and then you get to Abraham and so it's Now it's this particular man and his family, um, as you see there. So it's narrowing down in a sense. And then you get the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And then through Jacob, you you get all of Israel. And then Judah, David is of the tribe of Judah, and to Jesus. And then all of God's work then come. It's like it funnels into Jesus, and then it funnels out of Jesus. Like you can't, everything's pointing to him. And then once he comes, you can't make sense of what God's doing apart from Jesus and his work. Let me just add one more thing. If Jesus had, I've said these things before, but if Jesus came in Genesis chapter four,
0: it just wouldn't make sense. We, we need all this in the background to make sense of the work of Jesus. And there's something about the fact that everyone keeps failing that makes Jesus all the sweeter and more glorious. I, 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 this is not a great illustration, but imagine you have a football game, and the, your team's getting beat horribly, and you get into the fourth quarter, and the game is just, there's no way you can possibly come back. And so the coach calls in some quarterback no one's ever heard of, and they throw the quarterback in during the last quarter, and that quarterback is so good, he's able to actually come from behind and win the game just in the last minute. Minutes of play, if that doesn't it show you how much better that quarterback is, the fact that he came in the last moment and was able to save the whole game. So Jesus comes in, you could say, late in the game in this in regards to how this is set up in the fullness of time. But it shows how he is superior in the fulfillment of all that came before him. So if Jesus just showed up, born of Adam and Eve directly all the richness and complexity and diversity of theology that comes before it, all these types and patterns and shadows and covenants that are all clearing the way for Jesus, they wouldn't be there. And so there would be much less of a savoring of Jesus, much less of an appreciation of Jesus if
1: His work had not been so clearly demonstrated in many ways, fallen short of in these previous uh, generations. Well, I mean, also, we would not understand just how horrible sin is. I mean, because throughout these covenants and everything that God is doing, we start to realize just how far we fell from where we were in the garden and just how desperate our need is like we are absolutely helpless and hopeless in our sin and that's one of the biggest problems is people we just don't think we're as bad as we are and there's pushback even in evangelical circles that says oh you know people already know they're bad no they don't we don't know how bad we are like if we think we're bad we're a hundred thousand times worse than we think we are because that's what sin is and so You know, not only is it getting us ready, like you said, getting us ready for the work of Christ, but going to what you said with the appreciation, the the more we understand how sinful we are and the the effects of sin and the penalty of sin and and, and the the wickedness of sin, all the more does it shine the spotlight on Jesus and how precious He is to sinners.
0: Yeah, that's well said. So we're going to jump in here a little further Uh, this is from Tom Schreiner, the new covenant is not simply, this is important, it's not simply a renewal of the covenant at Sinai. It's not just a renewal. Uh, The new covenant is genuinely new, and thus the discontinuity between the new covenant and the covenant with Israel is greater than the continuity. Now, did you follow that? So the, the differences are greater than the similarities. The, the, the differences are so good, so superior, that the differences are greater than the similarities. But let's just mention similarities, just briefly, on the screen here. Uh, the New Covenant, what is similar or continuous between the Old and New Covenant? And uh, Peter Gentry lists these four things. We'll just tick through them really quickly. So number one, but all, all the covenants in the Bible, these are, these are all based on God's grace. It's based on God's goodness. The covenant with Israel was based on God's grace. Did they save themselves from Egypt? No, God rescued them by grace, and then he gave them the covenant. So it's, it's a gracious covenant. Both covenants are, the Mosaic one and the new covenant. And the purpose is the same. Remember, God wants his people to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What is the church called? First Peter 2, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So they, the, the purpose is the same. God wants people set apart for himself, uh, as you've said before, separated and consecrated. Separated from the world, consecrated, devoted to God. And that's what God wants in a people to be a shining light. to to the watching world. That's true in both of these covenants. Number three, this is a little tricky, the same character of divine instruction. This just means that there is going to be, God's moral character is going to show up in both covenants. We're going to see be faithful in both. Don't lie in both. Worship only God in both covenants. You're going to see a lot of overlap because it's the same God who made that covenant, who made this covenant. So we're expecting God's character to, to remain the same. And number four, both covenants are initiated by Blood. Remember, Moses sprinkles the blood on the people. Exodus twenty-four. And Jesus at the Last Supper holds up the cup. This cup is the new covenant. In my blood, shed for many, for the remission of sins. All of you drink from it. And so uh, we we see similarities. Why is it? I mean, why is it important that we have similarities here as well as differences, Greg,
1: between these two? Well, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. Is when Jesus comes on the scene, it's not some brand new thing. God has been preparing us uh, with the right categories and the right terminology to understand what he's going to do to save us. Um, And so, you know, it goes back to what you're saying. Like, um, yeah, the old covenant was initiated by blood. But again, when we understand that old covenant as... Um, insufficient. It it, mm-hmm. it it can't accomplish what's truly needed for man to be right with God. It, it makes us look at Jesus and say, okay, how is he going to do it better? Mm-hmm. Well, both are initiated with blood, but Jesus being God and man, his blood is of infinite value. And he doesn't just go into the back of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a human built building and sprinkle animal blood. He takes his own blood into the very presence of God, as it were, and sprinkles and, and, and makes makes us truly clean in the presence of God. And so you can't, again, like you said, you can't appreciate what Jesus does on our behalf as our high priest and with his, the spilling of His blood if we don't understand the necessity of bloodshed. Because without the shedding of blood, there can't be forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, because of sin, we can't get close to God. Because the blood, the, the, the shed blood of the, of the lamb represents our blood. Mm-hmm. Like if we were to go without the sacrifice, it'd be our blood that's shed and then we die and we're not in the presence of God. And so God accepts the blood of a substitute on our behalf. But again, we, can't, we, we will not be able to appreciate Jesus doing that if we're not well instructed on why that's necessary and on the insufficiency of everything that came before.
0: Yeah, that's good. So let's now look at the dissimilarities between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What is discontinuous or dissimilar between the Old and New Covenant? Uh, four points. We have a new and better mediator, and Greg's just hinting at this exact point, new and new and better mediator. Just to give one verse, you mentioned Hebrews is so good on this. Hebrews 9.15, uh, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Back in the old covenant, the mediators were sinful. Jesus is sinless. They were limited. Jesus is without limits. They could not truly, finally atone for sin. Jesus could truly, finally atone for sin. So you see, they're similar, but Jesus is far better. And that's, that's the favorite word in Hebrews, isn't it? Jesus is the better. The better this, the better that. Just, I'll, I'll give a list at the end, but Jesus is the better everything. And that's the, that's the point of the new covenant. Number two, we just mentioned this, the new and better sacrifice in Jesus' death I know I quoted it, but on the screen, the Last Supper, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus' blood is purchasing the promises of the new covenant, symbolized, uh, pictured there at the Last Supper through the cup of blood. Shriner writes like this, another feature of the new covenant is final and complete forgiveness of sins. Just as I read this, we're so used to this that I don't think we're shocked by it. Imagine living in the Old Covenant where every year there's a new, uh, There's a, you got to do the Passover again, you got to do the Day of Atonement again, over and over. Every, you're, you're constantly bringing in new sin to be punished. But listen, one of the most dramatic differences between the Old Covenant and the New is evident here. Old Covenant sacrifices were offered repeatedly, for they did not truly affect forgiveness. Christ's death was offered once, for by His death He dealt with sin completely and definitely. To put this another way, under the Old Covenant, free and total access to God was not granted. By way of contrast, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice truly cleanses the conscience of His people, and thus we can approach God's throne boldly and with confidence. In the Old Testament, there is no verse that says, everybody flock into the Holy of Holies and go boldly before the throne of grace. That is not in the Old Testament. You do that, what's going to happen? You're dead. You you are going to die. That, God's presence was limited. It was it was only one man once a year who was qualified and had done all the rituals and had been able. That's it. And he was your representative. But you wandering in there, uh, that's not happening. You're not walking into the holy of holies. But now the veil has been torn when Jesus died. The access point is open. What would have shocked the Jewish conscience back a couple thousand, three thousand years ago is now. Our, our everyday experience. We can go directly into God's presence through prayer. We have access to God through His throne, through our mediator, Christ in heaven. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, we will appear with Him in glory. The access we have to God is, is amazing. Greg, any, anything about
1: this? Well, this is uh, Schreiner's drawing from Hebrews four sixteen, when when the author says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, like th- this, is something I've I've tried to work on um, myself and just you know kind of rewire my thinking because we go like the Old Testament, like to Moses on Mount Sinai, for instance, and we're like, whoa, what, man, if I could be with Moses and see what Moses saw and have that kind of access to God, or or if, if, if even if I could see Jesus in the flesh on Earth right now, that that you know that would really do it for me. And what we what we fail to see is that because Jesus rose from the dead bodily, went bodily into the presence of God, the access we have in prayer is greater than the access that Moses had on Mount Sinai. You think about that. It's greater than what the disciples had when Jesus was here, flesh and blood on the earth. It's staggering to think about this. But we have a greater access to God than anyone else in history. Anyone else in the Bible. I mean dwell there a little bit and let it blow your mind when you pray in jesus name something far more significant than moses and israel at mount sinai is taking place you're closer to god than they were because you got better sacrifices and a better mediator and a better everything um that'll preach that's that's fantastic and this goes right with that point number three we have a new and better
0: provision which is the spirit for for all. Now, we we know where this is going, but but let's go back to a couple passages that often get overlooked. I think they go together. Uh, Numbers 11, I'll put it here on the screen. Uh, You can turn there if you want to. Numbers 11, just going to read a few verses. I I won't tell the whole story. Basically, God picks 70 elders to go out with Moses and the spirit comes upon them. Do you remember this? And they start prophesying. So here's what it says, the Lord took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. So the mark of the spirit was was prophesying, speaking God's word. And then remember Joshua gets jealous for Moses because two other guys who were not with the 70 are also filled with the spirit and they're also prophesying. And Joshua says, we need to tell them to stop. That's not right. And Moses says, look at this right here, uh, verse 29, Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see what Moses is wishing back at the time of Sinai? I wish everyone had the kind of direct, uh, filling the presence of God's Spirit. I wish everyone had what only I and 70s, a few others have. I wish all the hundreds of thousands of God's people had the Spirit in them. So what what was Moses' wish way back in 1400 BC, if you zoom forward to the prophecy of Joel, still Old Testament, Joel 2, verse 28, Joel takes Moses' wish and turns it into a prophecy basically. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterwards, talking about new covenant afterwards, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. Does that text sound familiar? What New Testament apostle quotes it? Peter adds Pentecost. When the Spirit is poured out in all God's people, every single person now is indwelt with the Spirit of God. Remember we said in the old covenant, people were regenerated by the Spirit, but not indwelt by the Spirit. Uh, they, they were, the, the Spirit could come upon someone and use someone, but they were not, every believer was not indwelt with the Spirit. He would regenerate, you would be regenerate, but not indwelt. But in the new covenant, we have something far better, The Holy Spirit not just regenerates, but He also indwells. He fills. He is present in all of us. And uh, that's amazing. Greg, anything about the Spirit's presence? Because this goes along with the access that we have and those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, um, Jesus talks about this. uh, I can't remember where in John. It's either 14, 15, or 16. He talks to His disciples. He says, talking about the Holy Spirit, says, He is with you, but He will be in you. Um, I mean, that's a huge shift. And, And going back to what Mark said, like in the Old Testament, like, yes, true believers, you, can't really, you cannot have faith without regeneration. Regeneration always precedes faith, produces faith. Uh, but where did the Spirit primarily dwell in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament? In the structures like the tabernacle and the temple. That was His dwelling point. And so faith was directed towards where the Spirit of God was dwelling. And then when the Spirit of God is you know, on Jesus, I think it says, in full measure or without mm-hmm. limit, Um, And now our faith is directed not toward a building that's filled with the spirit, but towards a human being who was also God who was filled with the spirit. And that's how we get the, the spirit in us as well is because Jesus said, you know, it's to your advantage that I go away. And that's still and John, was it 16? Maybe he says that um, it's to your advantage that I go away. And we might be saying, but why would it be better to not have the Son of God in human flesh right here with us? Why would that be better? Why is that to our advantage? Because the next thing he says is because when I go, I'm going to send the Spirit, the helper, who's going to come and he's going to indwell you. And so the difference is with Jesus in a human body, he's only in one place at one time. Mm-hmm. But when he ascends, he sends the Spirit. He pours out the Spirit to use the language of Joel and Pentecost. He pours out the Spirit. So now the Holy Spirit, who's the Spirit of Jesus, you're not going to get something different with the Spirit than you do with Jesus, by the way. Um, this John, Jesus clearly says he's going to take from what is mine, he's going to give it to you. So the Spirit is going to communicate to us everything that Jesus wants. And so Jesus pours out the Spirit, and now we can have within us what we'd have if Jesus was right there in front of us. But now it can go global. Every Christian, everywhere, no matter where you are, you have the full presence of God dwelling in you.
0: Yeah, I've heard it said, uh, another pastor said, it's better to have Je- uh, better to have the spirit inside of you than Jesus beside you. Now, you might hear that and you go, mm-hmm. is that is that true? But stop and think about it. And let me just quote the verse Greg just quoted it. It's in, it's in John 16, seven. I tell you the truth, this is the night before he dies. Mm-hmm. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And that, that's already a weird sentence. Jesus, it's, it's to your benefit that I leave. And then he says, why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. So the, the Holy Spirit, see, if Jesus was standing right here next to me, uh, Jesus uh, standing next to me doesn't guarantee that my internal life is changed. Did tens of thousands of people see Jesus in person and not actually believe in him, not actually follow him, not actually become disciples? Yes. So Jesus standing in this room right now speaking would guarantee nothing about my eternal destiny because I could just as well reject him as receive him, right? But if the Holy Spirit is inside of me, there's no question where I'm going. I am gonna be trusting Jesus, walking with Jesus, following Jesus, obeying Jesus, not perfectly, but truly. And so it's far better to have God's transforming spirit present within me to change me than just to have Jesus present physically in the same space, which is an amazing thought. Now the last one here is, uh, and we're already touching on this, it's uh, the new and better promise of the new covenant, which is different from the old, is a regenerate people. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter eight, In your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter eight. This is an important text on this uh, subject. And let me just quote Schreiner here as we turn there. Hebrews eight, here's what Schreiner says. The flaw with the old covenant is that Israel failed to keep its stipulations. So the covenant curses came on Israel and culminated in exile. The new covenant remedies, fixes this problem, however, for God promises to put my law within them and to write it on their hearts. So Hebrews chapter uh, 8, Greg, can you just read from verse 6 all the way to 12?
1: Yeah, verses 6 through 12. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, much, is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For He finds fault with them when He says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." Yeah, Greg, in just a second,
0: I want to get your thoughts on this. Let me just say a quick word. This is one of those rubber meets the road moments in the series where real, very strong application occurs and differences uh, appear between denominations. So we would argue, and I will tell you, you've heard my story perhaps, Uh, I I grew up in a wonderful Presbyterian church, I I, I still love the PCA in many ways, I still have a lot of Presbyterianism in me, and I'm not ashamed of that, but on this point, this is where I had to part ways with my Presbyterian background, although I love the PCA. Um, This was the point in college where this argument, and texts like this one were the the ones that helped uh, me... I mean, i really against my will. Changed my mind. I wasn't planning on becoming Baptist. It, I came to the dark side against my will, ladies and gentlemen. I, I was I was dragged in. And so what happened was in my dorm room in 2008, up at two o'clock in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I'm listening to a John Piper sermon on baptism and circumcision, which is what you do at two in the morning if you want to fall asleep, I guess. So I'm listening to it, and uh, th- these kinds of arguments start coming to my mind for the first time very clearly. And and I'll just flesh out here. It's statements like this in yellow. Th- this right here. God is saying what he's fixing about the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant's flaw was the majority did not follow God. The majority of Israel were unregenerate, unredeemed, and worshipped idols, right? So if God wants a New Covenant that's better, what's better about the New Covenant? Here's what's better. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, like become believers, know him in a saving way. No one's going to have to tell their brothers in the community, know the Lord. Why? Here's the cure. Here's the, here's the solving of the problem of the Old Covenant, for they shall all know me. Not a remnant, not even a majority. Every single individual member of the New Covenant who's truly a member of the New Covenant is a born-again, redeemed, spirit-filled, forgiven individual. So for they shall all know me, every single one, from the least of them to the greatest. Again, there's no exceptions, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, I'll remember their sins no more. The law is on their minds. It's written on their hearts. In other words, what is God fixing with the New Covenant? It's only true believers who are in the New Covenant community. And this is where the rubber meets the road uh, on the issue of baptism.
1: Greg, why don't I throw to you on this? How does the rubber meet the road on baptism? Um, Well, we we have to make some distinctions here in order to, to appreciate this. In a Presbyterian church, they have a view that baptism is the covenant sign, which I think is correct. Um, but it is to be given to believers and their children, mm-hmm. just like in the Old Covenant. Okay, that, That's the, the continuity, the, the similarity that they see there in Presbyterian Covenant theology. So when uh, Isaac yeah. is born to Abraham. He's yep. not a believer yet, but it's but at a week
0: old, he is circumcised. Yes. He receives the sign of the covenant yes. before he's a believer. And yes. the argument would be just like in the old covenant, you give the covenant sign to your unbelieving children mm-hmm. the moment within a week of birth. So in the new covenant, believing parents who are in the covenant community should give the covenant sign of baptism to their unbelieving children a week after birth. It's arguing for strong continuity yes. between the old mm-hmm. and new covenant, strong similarity
1: between Israel and the church. Do you see? Keep going, Greg. Sorry. Yeah. And it's given in hopes that eventually they'll have faith that matches the sign that was given to them. But it's no guarantee. No. Uh, so the old covenant, the sign is given um, to you know, the people and their children, regardless of whether or not they have true faith. Here's where it gets interesting. Um, Jeremiah, which is what Hebrews is quoting, look again at the part in yellow, for they shall all know me. Here's the key from the least of them to the greatest. So no matter whether you're the greatest in this covenant community or the very least, you're going to know God. And we would say, you know, if you're going to think Presbyterian-like here, the least would be infants, children, whatever, uh, because, you know, they haven't lived really, it's all that, and say, but what, what is God saying here? What is God promising? They're going to know me. They're going to be saved. They're going to have faith is what he's talking about. And it's impossible for a, uh, an infant to have faith. I mean, we do believe young children can come to have faith, but it's something they have to exercise, something they have to to willingly put their trust in Jesus. And so very clearly here, um, the covenant community, they're all going to be saved. It's not going to be a mixed group anymore. It's just not going to be a mixed group. Every person in the new covenant is saved. They have faith. They're regenerate. They're going to heaven, however you want to say it. Um, and so when it comes to the sign of the covenant, which is baptism, um, just in light of the fact that only believers, only the regenerate are going to be in this community, you can only administer the sign of the covenant to those who are showing that they belong, which is they have faith, they know the Lord. Um, and flowing from that, baptism itself, what does it picture? It pictures a reality Um, of your dying with Christ and rising with Him to new life. The New Testament everywhere talks about that as an experience only believers have. It never talks about children having that. Why? Because children can't. Little, Little infants and stuff like that, they can't have that kind of experience. Only believers can. So the sign itself communicates only for believers. And then when we look at God's promise in this new covenant, Um, the only people who are going to receive it are the covenant community, the people who are in the covenant, and the only people in the covenant are those who were saved.
0: Yeah, no. There's and more to say. Obviously. Th- th- yeah, there's a whole lot more to say on that. But uh, I hope you'll see here again how strong the similarity is between mosaic and new covenant, or the abrahamic and new covenant. How, how strong the co- co- the similarities as it carries over is going to change what denomination you're a part of. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's that important how you put the covenants together. So we're going to say as you see fulfillment in Christ, the st- okay. Another way to say it: as you see the old covenant fulfilled in Christ, the structure of the community of God mm-hmm. changes. The structure changes. It's no longer something you are born into. It's something something you are born again into. That's a very different experience. So in the old covenant, you're born into it and you get the covenant sign upon birth. You're a week old. In the new covenant, you're born again into it as a believer and you receive the covenant sign upon new birth. But mm. again, that's a structural difference about the, about the covenant community and the people of God. And you see how it's meant to solve a major problem, mm. which is that God's people were fundamentally reprobate throughout the whole Old Testament with the exception of the remnant. Remember uh, the Elijah text? Uh, Remember Elijah after Mount Carmel, he feels like he's failed, and he feels like you know Ahab and Jezebel don't listen, and you know all that stuff, and he he wants to die. Remember that really low moment. And what does the Lord say? Elijah says, "I'm the only believer left. Everyone else is worshiping Baal." And the Lord says, "Actually, I've kept for myself seven thousand who have not bowed the knee, a remnant." Uh, And so, does God always have a remnant? Yes, but in the new covenant, it's every, it's all the people of God. And let, let me add one more thing: Does that mean every time? someone is baptized in a Baptist church, they're definitely a believer. Absolutely not, of course not. The, but the point here is the only time we would ever baptize someone who turns out later to show themselves to be unbelievers would be when we do that just unknowingly. Yeah. In principle, we will never baptize an unbeliever, okay? In principle, if, 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 if someone professes faith, has a credible testimony, and they appear to be a, a brand new Christian, and they've never been baptized, of course we will, we will baptize that person, you know, going through a process. If that person five years later walks away from the faith, We didn't sin by baptizing them. We did what we were commanded to do based on what we saw. But once the fruit becomes evident, this person's not walking with the Lord, then church discipline follows and and on from there. But we we are not in that sense doing something similar to infant baptism. Sometimes that's the accusation is that when we baptize a false convert, we're doing the same thing as an infant baptism. But I said, no, no, no. When you do an infant baptism, you know the baby's not a believer. (laughs) When you baptize a false convert, you don't know it's an unbeliever. How do you know? So you can only base it on what you see outwardly. And if someone's not professing faith, you don't give them the covenant sign. And if someone is professing faith and there's credible testimony and fruit, mm-hmm. then uh, you know, provided that that, that that is qualified, you, you give the covenant sign. Anything else, Greg? We no, could probably was, go on and on. That like was that. well said. Okay, um, for the sake of time, we're gonna skip ahead here on some of these slides. And let me get to some more areas of how the new covenant is better than the old. You remember this slide? If you were here last Sunday, you saw this slide. This is about the failure of the old covenant. And again, the problem isn't God. The problem is the people, obviously. But listen, the old covenant always was resulting in sin and and judgment. So here are the three things last Sunday we mentioned. Deportation to Babylon. Desertion. Remember God's glory? Left the temple. He saw saw it fly over the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel did. And the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So look at this. In in the new covenant, uh, how is it better? we don't end up with deportation in the new covenant. We get instead a new David and a new exodus. Number two, we don't end up deserted by God in the new covenant like Israel did. No, we get a new marriage, Christ in the church, and a new temple, God's very presence with us. And number three, we don't end in destruction at the end of the New Testament uh, the New Covenant but it ends with a new creation a new heaven a new creation a new heavens and new earth so let's start with the first one we're not deported away to Babylon but we instead get a new king David and a new Exodus Greg share just, just this verse here I got um, Jeremiah uh, 16 14 to 16 uh, can you read these two ver- these couple of verses and then uh, let,
1: I wanna, I want you to say something about new, what New Exodus means okay so let's read Jeremiah uh, 16 14 through 16. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But in contrast, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land. So are we, we're, we're seeing, how are we seeing a new exodus predicted here? What, what clues us in that it's a new exodus? Well, it, it, it's similar to like the new covenant in the sense the days are coming when, and he, he draws, he makes a comparison between a key historical event and then a new thing that he's going to do. The key historical event, the, the, the first exodus, if you will, is when God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. Um, And that's why he says, it's coming, it shall no longer be said. Because up to that point, that was their primary reference point for who they were as a people. Their redemption as a Mm -hmm. people was the exodus event. And he's like, that's not going to be the marker anymore. That's no longer going to be what you look to. And then verse 15, the contrast, but they're going to say, instead of as the Lord lives who brought us out of the land of Egypt, it's going to be as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, out of all the countries, where he had driven them, and so this is a different kind of exodus. Because remember, exodus in Egypt was all these great signs and destruction of Egypt and various things like that. When God brings all all the people back, like you're not going to see everything happening to the nations that they're coming from that you saw happening in the land of Egypt. I mean, you're not going to see a virtual destruction, death of the firstborn, locusts, plagues, hail. I mean, it, it sometimes God does bring. Parts of that in judgment, but like as a whole, it's not a similar exodus. Um, it's a greater exodus because if God's saying, you know, you're not going to say it like you used to, but instead like this, whatever He's transferring you to is greater mm-hmm. than what you left.
0: And just on that point, if you were in the old covenant people and you were singing songs on Sabbath, you would be singing about the exodus a lot. Look at the Psalms. Think about how many Psalms talk about God's deliverance from the from Egypt. And today. It's not that we won't mention the Exodus, we're talking about it right now. We're not against talking about it, but are most of our praise songs mainly about the first Exodus? No, they're mostly about the Exodus in Jesus, out of slavery to sin, into the kingdom of heaven. So it's true that literally uh, the, the, the new Exodus has replaced the old. Not that we discount it or ignore it, but right. certainly our focus is on the Exodus yes. that Christ has mm-hmm. brought us. And just, I want to add Ezekiel 37, a chapter we go to sometimes. I want to just add here that, do you see the blue, the blue words there reference the Davidic king? Messiah. But notice it's connected to the new Exodus. Look at verse 21. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will make the people of Israel, I will take the people of Israel from the nations. This is Exodus language, taking them out of exile, among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Does that sound like new covenant language, obedience? They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a, here's the new covenant, covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Do you see all the pieces? There's going to be a new David who's going to come. A forever David. There's going to be an obedient people. There's going to be a return to the land. There's going to be a return from exile, a new exodus, and a new covenant, a covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant. All the pieces are right here in Ezekiel 37, and you find them in other uh, texts as well. Anything you want to add there, Greg?
1: Um, not yet, but I w- in a second,
0: we'll get it. Okay, there. so uh, for the sake of time, how do you choose here? Okay, so <laughs> I'll quote Schreiner. The covenant with David also finds its realization in the New Covenant, which is inaugurated in Jesus' blood, fulfilled in the reign of Jesus from heaven in the present evil age, and is consummated in his reign over the entire cosmos in the age to come. As you know, that's why when the Christmas story happens, you shall call his name Jesus. What? The lord god will give to him the throne of his father david he will reign over the house of jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end when the return from exile comes the new exodus it's going to be the son of david who's going to reign forever
1: move, do you want to keep going there or do you want to move well, to point? i wanted to make the point I'm, yeah. I'm not i'm not recalling the specific place where this is said it's the throne passage that you just it was quoted. 133 is oh it is okay over. actually i just saw it so you know you think about the promises um, that God is making about David ruling on the throne. We, we mentioned this last time, but I think it's worth mentioning again. Does God literally mean that it's going to be a resurrected David, the Old Testament king, who's going to come back to life and he's going to be the one on the throne? Or is David a, a kind of a, a figurehead, a symbol for the Davidic line, the Davidic lineage, the Davidic dynasty, because the promise is that one of the sons of David is going to sit on the throne? Um, and so we don't want to ever accuse the Lord of contradicting Himself or speaking out of both sides of His mouth. Is it David or is it God or the Son of God, the Son of David who's going to be on the throne? You look at Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 32 uh, and 33, and it says, He will be great. This is the angel talking um, to Mary. It says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So, who's going to be on the throne of David? Is it David or the son of David? The answer is yes. Um, David's line is expressed ultimately in the son of David, who is Jesus. And the clearest parallel I have to this, we've talked about this, is John the Baptist and Elijah. You know, it's was John the Baptist physically, literally a reincarnation of Elijah? No. But could he be called Elijah? Yes. Why? Because he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus even called John the Baptist Elijah. And do we think Jesus got confused? Because no, Jesus knew who Elijah was. He talked with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah. And so again, the the Bible can use the person who stands as representative for everyone kind of in his lineage, in his descendancy, or, you know, like tradition. Um, Same thing here. He talks about David and the son of David sitting on the throne, being king. It's talking about one person, person, that son who represents everything good that David represented, he's the one who's going to fulfill that.
0: Yes, definitely. So the next one here is a new marriage and temple. so God's not going to desert us. He's going to come back as the groom and his presence, like the temple will be, will be there. Let me just we talked about Hosea last Sunday. Remember Hosea and Gomer and the, him, him buying her out of prostitution? Look at Hosea 2. I just read parts of this. I've I just got excerpts. Here's what God says talking about uh, Israel. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she went after her lovers and forgotten me, declares the Lord. Therefore, now here's here's the new covenant promise. Here's the future. Israel has been unfaithful. Now look, therefore, behold, I will allure her. He's talking about winning his people back and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will, God's people will call him my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and I will make... For them, a covenant. This is the new covenant. A covenant on that day, and I will abolish war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Do you see? God's not going to desert his people. God is instead going to come as the groom who's going to rescue his people, and of course, Jesus is so clearly uh, the groom that, that we all anticipate, and we see that throughout the rest of the New Testament, but for the sake of time, we've got to keep moving. Re- uh, I also mentioned the temple. Um, remember we, we mentioned last week about how Ezekiel saw God's glory leave the temple? Well, a few chapters later, Ezekiel says this. Behold, Ezekiel 43, verse two. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Remember, it left east. It went east over the Mount of Olives. Now it's coming back from the east. And the glory of the Lord... Entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And on it goes. Is God going to come back and fill his place? Is God going to is come back to the temple? Yes. And we'll find out that the next time God fills the temple, it's actually when Jesus walks into the temple. That, that's really the next time that God is, is present in that sense in the new covenant. Um, We've got three minutes. We're just, we're just running. Okay, here's the last point. Uh, not destruction but a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, Greg, can you read? i got the slide here for Isaiah 65. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you read verses 17 and 18?
1: Yeah. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness.
0: Yes. So again, we see all these things. Is the new covenant far, far, far better than the Old Covenant. Yes. And in light of all that we talked about, we'll kind of wrap it up on two, two last slides here. Tell me if the first verse of the New Testament doesn't ring with more glory after thinking about these things. Here's the first verse of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Doesn't it have more meaning when you think of it in light of covenants? It's clear, this is a covenant verse. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, which includes Israel and all that's gone before. This is the true son of David, the true son of Abraham. He is the one through, through which all the covenants are going to be f- fulfilled. And Schreiner uh, writes this about how better, how much better it is. The frequent word in Hebrews is better. And this fits with the superiority of the new covenant over the old. In Jesus, there are, in, in Hebrews, a better hope, a better covenant, better promises, better sacrifices, a better possession, a better country, a better resurrection, and a better word. Abel's blood speaks a better word. I mean, Christ's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So in, in the new covenant, everything is better because of what Christ is done. There's similarities, but the differences are more important and more glorious. So Greg, can you, closing thought, and then you can pray for us.
1: Um, something we're going to, yeah, one quick closing thought. Um, and it, we're going to come back to this a whole lot more in depth later. Um, but once the better, more permanent, everlasting one comes, there's never any going back to the old, ever in any way. Why? Because the true reality is here. It's like you have a picture. The old, the old covenant is like a, a picture of a loved one. Um, the loved one comes. You spend time with the loved one. Once the loved one comes, you don't go huddle in your room with the picture <laughs> when they're out there in the living room like, where, where are you at? No, you put the picture away and you go spend time with the reality. I mean, we know how that works, right? Um, and so, we're gonna, like I said, we're going to come back to that. That has huge implications. Uh, for understanding I, Israel I just, and the church. i got to just say one more thing. Go that's a great it.
0: point, Greg. So yeah, the, the big question is going to be, is there a future millennium where the temple is rebuilt yes. and we go back to literal animal sacrifices? Because that's, that's what a dispensational view would say yes to. So we're going to say, is that taking a step backwards in redemptive history when fulfillment has already come? We don't need to go back to animal Correct. sacrifice anymore. Yes.
1: That'll be a big part of the discussion. Yeah, that, That's what I was thinking. I, <laughs> you, you, you said it and we'll just wet their appetite and have to come back to it later. Pray for us, Greg. Yeah. God, we thank you so much for this better covenant that you've given us all centered in the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we want to magnify him. We want to exalt him. We want to make much of him uh, because he is the center of it all. Um, All our hopes, all our desires are fulfilled in him because all your plans for our good are fulfilled in him. And so, Lord, help us Lord, just continue to to process everything we've been looking at. Lord, it's been a a very quick overview, but Lord, I pray that it will help us read our Bibles better. It will help us understand how things fit together better. Uh, Truly, the Bible is about Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And I pray, Lord, that as we read, we would begin to see more and more and more all the riches of His glory from the beginning to the end. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.